do it live. Do it live! I can, I'll write it and we'll do it live! So to get that perfect barbecue, you use wood. Are you sure it's safe? Whatever. We put the lighter fluid on, strike your match, and... Oh, should we call the fire department? That might be a good idea. hey Welcome to a new Barbecue Central show. This will be the first of two weeks of what we're calling pre-recorded all new content shows. So coming up behind me is going to be that extended conversation that I promised you that you would hear last week when I was talking to Sam the Cooking Guy with Meathead from AmazingRibs.com. So second Tuesday of the month, familiar face in the first interview segment. Actually, it'll be the first two interview segments, first hour of Meathead. We're going to get a whole book genesis from book one to book two, where we're at today. Last week, Sam was like, how can you have a put off of over a year writing an additional book? How does that happen with publishers? You'll get the whole inside scoop. And then the second hour, we will be joined by second Tuesday of the month normal guest, Robert Boss from robertfboss.com. See what new he's into. So, if you are ready to get into it, I will save you all the show reaction from this past week, which is fine. We'll get back into the normal next live show, which will be on July 25th, once we're back in town. But for now, as I said, pre-recorded new content. And who doesn't love that? Of course. Everybody loves new content. Before we load in Meathead... I'll talk to you about Primo Grills. What do we love about ceramic cookers? We love that they're fuel efficient. You can achieve low and slow temperatures for traditional barbecue meat. We love that you can get rip-roaring hot for the high-temperature grillings of steaks and other thin cuts. But what's missing in the everyday lineup of ceramic cookers? The real ability to do true two-zone cooking. Two-zone cooking is important to both professionals and backyard cooks alike. It's the best way to manage a fire and cook with confidence. However, getting a two-zone fire in a round ceramic cooker is not very realistic. Why? Because it's round, and I meant realistic. I don't know what I just said, but I meant realistic. Primo Grill enters the game with a oval design that changes it for everybody. Now you can execute a two-zone setup that you desire. Gives you the other ceramic grill benefits as well. And when you break it down, there's more than 60 different ways to cook on a Primo. Only sold through dealers. Find one near you. PrimoGrill.com. Find the dealer that is closest to you. Check them out. See all the different sizes of ovals. Pick the one that best fits your needs. And away you go. While you're at the dealer, don't forget to pick up all those accessories as well. Like the pizza oven or the rotisserie. Just to name a few. Why not? The bottom line is this. Best ceramics in the biz. Yes. Patented technology. Of course. True two-zone cooking capabilities and multiple sizes of ovals. I just mentioned that. If you just have to have a round one, they have that. But come on, oval up for crying out loud. That's the new hashtag. Hashtag oval up. And again, only found at a dealer near you, which you can locate that dealer by going to primogrill.com or take a look on the website first, then visit in person. That's what I think you should do. Primogrill.com. Follow them on Facebook and Instagram. And Meathead rejoins me here in just a moment. Stick around. We'll be right back. You're listening to the Barbecue Central Show. Broadcasting live from the Barbecue Central Show studios in Cleveland, Ohio. You're listening to the Barbecue Central Show. Once again, here's your host, Greg Rempe. Welcome back. This portion of the show being brought to you by CookinPellets.com, your number one source for quality wood pellets for all your pellet-driven cookers. You visit cookandpellets.com to see what they have available for sale. And when you're ready to buy, if you want great shipping rates, go to Lowe's.com or Walmart.com or Amazon.com and buy from there. Typically, shipping is included when you find them on those websites. So check those out. But look first at cookinpellets.com. My next guest created the most heavily trafficked barbecue and grilling website on the face of the earth. A best-selling author, a barbecue hall of famer, a barbecue central show's guest hall of famer. And we know him by one name and one name only, Meathead. There he is, Meathead joining us. 
And we're going to be talking about a couple weeks ago, you sent along a live press release to me that I announced uh, on the show about the delay the of first. this second book. You were the first to know. And now enough weeks have passed where you are in your normal monthly spot. So I want to talk about it. I want to give you ample opportunity to answer all of my questions. But I think it's important, especially with you, because we've known you for so long. Uh, I forget how long we've been doing interviews, but I think it stretches might uh, it might stretch back to 2007, uh, 2008, something along these lines. So any number of years, almost two decades, if you can believe it. And I, God. I want to give a good background here because you are, as we know, a photographer, a website creator, uh, a creator of, um, of of liquor institutions and rating systems. And I mean, you're very, very well rounded in your expertise and many different things, not just the barbecue and grilling oh, side of things. Right. I'm well rounded. All right. That's right. So that's the size we like. So it all started with the first book, The Science of Barbecue and Grilling with Meathead, uh, which is right there over your right shoulder. So let's dial it all the way back, even before that book came out and saw the cataclysmic rise to prominence that it so deserved. How does this book deal, the first one, how does the first book deal come together? Well, um, I, I did my undergraduate work in journalism and my masters in photography and i was the wine critic for the washington post and the chicago tribune and published a magazine about wine and then i got deep into barbecue i'd always been into cooking and barbecue launched amazingribs.com in 2005 and the idea at the launch was that it would be sort of a way of crowdsourcing a book it began as early as 2004 2005 and uh, I wanted to do a book because at that time, there were not many books on barbecue. Uh, there was um, uh, one or two uh, smaller uh, efforts. And I thought, well, gosh, uh, there's a need for this. And, uh, you know, it fits my skill set, writing and photography. And so I launched the website, but the website took off and it became a way to make a living and uh, it became an occupation. And um, I started, you know, gather, we, I call it gathering string uh, on a book. And uh, we finally published the first book, Meathead, The Science of Great Barbecue and Grilling, in May 2016. Was somebody and soliciting you for a book, though, or were you? did you have a book in hand and you went to pitch? Um, yeah, you, the, that whole book publishing process is really interesting. Um, it, it's changed drastically over the years, as everything has because of the internet. Um, you really need, if you're going to publish a book and you want any kind of sales, which means revenue, you really need an agent. And I was going to culinary conferences because I'm deep into cooking. And I met Sally and Lisa Eckes, who are the leading agents in the culinary world. And we got to know each other and they asked me if I was thinking about a book and I said, yeah. And they said, let's talk about it. So I flew out to their um, offices in Western Massachusetts. We had a good old time and we cooked and ate. And uh, they said, let's see if we can get you a book deal. And uh, they made one phone call. Uh, they called uh, Houghton Mifflin Harcourt and they uh, made me a, an offer I couldn't refuse. Uh, and uh, uh, took me about 18 months to finish the book. Uh, I had already, as I say, gathered some string. I worked with Professor Greg Blonder, who uh, I mentioned frequently here and on the website. He's he, he, he's by training a physicist, but um, he's also a food scientist. He's now at Boston University, and he was my he vented all the science because there's a real science flavor to my book. And by the way, I think that's a trend in the culinary world now if you look around alton brown and christopher kimball uh there's a geek flavor to culinary nowadays it's 2023 we're in a highly technical society so my book hit that sweet spot could you have More done the, could you have done the book had you not partnered with greg blonder or had some type of person to check your 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 uh, hypotheses 
No, and I think, you know, that's a key to great publishing, writing, is uh, this book, for example, that I'm finishing now, you have what they call first readers. A after you, I mean, you work with the publisher, you settle in, you, you have to pitch the publisher, you have to have an outline, you have to have comparisons, you have to show them what books are out there that are competitions and so on. But as you complete the book, you need to have first readers. And these are people who are really critical of the content, who can really vet the content. For this book, I had six first readers, including Tamar Haspel at the Washington Post, who writes about food science and uh, politics, Professor Blonder, and others who went through it with a fine-tooth comb. Um, so it, it's really important to do that. Otherwise, I mean, there's a lot of junk on the Internet, and, and, and hopefully books, especially books from reputable publishers, aren't junk, and I hope mine aren't either. So you put the deal together. Now, uh, typically in, in a book business setting, the company that you're partnering with gives you some type of an advance or money. Yeah. And that's used over the course of however long it takes putting the book together to, to do whatever, like, or is that just an advance on sales? What's a, well, what is the that? advances advances typically are they're designed so that the author can devote time to getting the book done, either quitting their day job or in my case, bringing in extra help to help with the website so I can divert time to write the book. Um, and the advance is sort of like a down payment, if you will. Um, if they give you a $150,000 advance, um, then that is advance against royalties. So as the book sells, the royalties add up and you don't get any money until you surpass 150000 It's like a draw then in commission sales. Money. Yeah, typically that's the way book publishing works. The author gets a percentage of sales. It's a very small percentage, by the way, but it's a percentage of sales. And it depends on the retail price. So if Amazon is discounting it, you get less than if it's sold at full price in a bookstore. What if you don't earn enough back on the advance? Do they come back and tell you to pay the balance? Um, depends on the contract. Usually no... <laughs> But sometimes, yes. Um, oh. uh, my publisher withheld $40,000 in case books were returned as unsold, which really ticked the heck out of me. Yeah. Uh, I wanted that forty grand, and uh, the new contract for this book doesn't have that clause. That's typical. Um, uh, so it really, you know, you, that's what, one of the reasons why you want a good agent. Sally is a really tough negotiator because I've negotiated against her for my end of the deal. And she, she, she's no, no fool. And she, she got me a good deal. This book. And well, I think, as you know, I, I had, I had decided at one time I was going to self-publish this book because now, it's hold become on really viable. Let's not, let's not get down the, the outline that I have worked here. Let's <laughs> stay on topic because this is all nuanced stuff that we want to follow in the right direction. So 18 months later, the book comes out or you have something to turn in for them to edit down and then make it sellable to the public. After you go through the first readers and you're done polishing and editing, um, you turn in the manuscript. Now, photography is a separate deal. And often you hire a cookbook, you hire an outside photographer. But I did my master's in photography. So all of the 400 pictures in that book there, with the exception of a few product shots, which are from the manufacturer, I did all the photography, all the recipes and, and pictures. And I'm doing all the photography for the new book. And I've sent you some uh, samples of those. I've really upped my game on the photography. And you, sometimes the deadline for the text and the photography are separate, maybe a month or two apart. Wrap up the text, send in the text. So the editor, you're assigned an editor at the publisher. And presumably that editor is really knowledgeable and knows, uh, knows the topic. And he or she will read through and offer suggestions. My last editor on that book there was a woman named Rux Martin, who is legendary in the cookbook world. 
and she really helped. I mean, um, it's really tough. I have been an editor when I published a magazine and uh, I still edit content that goes on our website. And it's a very tough job. You don't want to take the voice of the author away, but you want to make sure that it's focused and that it's moving in the right direction and that things are organized properly. And I've worked with writers who are not professionals and they get really pissy about, uh, uh, you, you, you can't edit my pro, pro, pregnant prose, you know, that that's a beautiful sentence. You can't take, you know, and there's redundancy and wordiness and all that stuff. Rux did a great job with that book. She really helped me focus it and trim it down and make it uh, better organized. Um, and I have a new editor now, uh, Rux retired and her understudy, um, uh, Sarah Quack is my editor. Um, Houghton Mifflin Harcourt was sold to HarperCollins, so I'm now with HarperCollins. At any point during the writing of this first book, was there talk or mention of a second book down the line? I don't know what kind oh, yeah. of um, you know extenuating circumstances there would need to be, but there was talk of a an additional book before the first one was even out? Oh, yeah, because I knew that I didn't get everything I wanted into that book. And again, a typical publishing contract, if the publisher so desires, and they usually do, they make you commit in the contract that they get first dibs on any sequel, uh, any additional books. So in my first contract for that book, they claimed dibs on a, another book. The first book is released and is an unmitigated success. Perhaps 250,000 copies so far. Perhaps the like nobody even thought would be. Um, I thought it would do well, but not that well. Yeah. I think Steve Reichlin's book, Barbecue Bible, is still by far the number one bestseller. It's still chugging along out there. It came out before my book, long before my book. It's still a, a, a benchmark book. And Steve, I know, is a regular guest on your show, and he's also a Barbecue Hall of Famer. Uh, I'm not sure, but I think my book is the number two bestseller. I remember... After you're on all these TV shows and it's a it's best selling and it's it's experiencing great success. You told me on the show. You've told me in person. If I ever talk about a second book, come up to <laughs> Chicago and kill me. And then you talked about. So you've said you know there's never going to be a second book. However, at some point you're on the show again and you say, hey, by the way, I'm I'm doing a second book. Why do you do another one? Let me hold on a second you know, before you answer that. I only ask because if you if it seemed like you were having a joyful book writing experience, like Stephen Reichlin or some of these other authors, well, I wouldn't even have to ask that. It was it's just like innate. It's in you. You enjoy the process. You can't wait to do the next one. But when somebody's telling me. If I say I'm going to do another one, come up and shoot me. I can surmise that maybe it was a labor of labor instead of a labor of love. It's, it's so. both. It's, it, it's like playing football. Um, you love the game on Sunday and you enjoy it immensely. And then Monday morning, you really regret it. Um, I, one of the reasons I was reluctant to do another book is because the website is my bread and butter. The website is my first love. Um, the website is very well regarded. Amazingribs.com is by far the most popular. And it was taking a lot of time away from the website that I wanted to spend on the website. But um, I realized after I turned in the first book and it was doing well and it was generating re revenue, all that revenue went to the website. I mean, every penny that I earn, speakers fees and everything goes to the company. Um, uh, and I think that's a good way to set up a business. Uh, there's no conflict of interest. I'm working on a book for my own benefit. That's not the way I work. Um, and uh, uh, there, I there was more stuff in my head that I wanted to write and more techniques I was playing with you and I were talking about I love doing I love Asian foods I love cooking in a wok and I just can't get the wok hot enough on my stovetop and I discovered I could cook with a wok on top of a charcoal chimney I wanted to write about that um, and so uh, it's in this book in the new book if you like 
the book writing, but you are at conflict of trying to also keep the website as relevant and as as good as you think it should be, meeting your standard. Why not have other people to, to run the day-to-day operation? Remove yourself. I was just listening to a, a podcast with Darren Worth, and when he was putting together the Smokey D's restaurant, from day one, mm-hmm. he said, we're building this restaurant without me being in it, without me and Cherry being in it. So if we want to go away for a week or two or we're chasing a, a world title, whatever the case may be, the best interest of the restaurant isn't hinging on our being in there every day in order to make things happen. Why not do something similar? Allow yourself the flexibility to write another book, but have mm-hmm. other people in an operation standpoint uh, keep the website up and running. And if they need to ask you a question or get a second opinion on something, go ahead. But you trust them enough to keep your standard and the website running. I've done that, actually. And I think any restaurateur, and Darren will be the first to tell you, and Darren's a brilliant cook and a really smart guy. The key person in any restaurant is a general manager. Um, and the general managers who runs it. Often it's the owner, but often it's not. And uh, uh, I've hired uh, a pretty good team. Uh, Clint Cantwell, whom you know well, uh, Clint used to run the Kingsford website, and he's a champion cook in his own right. He lives in Memphis. Clint is my GM, and he's really running the show in many, many ways. Um, And then I have around him uh, Husky, who runs the Pitmaster Club. And uh, so I have a team now, that, and they've allowed me to spend – most of the past year working on this book so that is in effect and look at i'm 74 years old uh, i'm mortal i'm not going to last forever i'd like the website to last forever so i am in the process of turning over more and more of the management and conduction of the daily business of the website to my team so that they can continue to run it when i'm gone at some point after you announce there's going to be the second book, something runs amiss. Maybe you have a difference of opinion with an editor or the publishing company or whatever, and you're on the show and you're telling me, we've broken up. I'm returning the advance that they gave me. By the way, you did say on the show that you were doing the second book because they were going to give you a lot of money. And I said, doing it for the money If you didn't like it the first time, probably isn't the best idea to do it a second time. We agreed to disagree. And then you, I I don't know what, so what happened? Did you, did you not like the way you were being treated? Were they trying to steer you in a direction you thought was not in the best way for a second book? Yeah, there were a couple, there were were a couple issues. I, I really wanted to focus on culinary art in this book. I mean, everybody, there, there, I didn't want to write just another barbecue book. That's why this last book is successful. It focuses on science. It focuses on concepts. It focuses on methods. There's a hundred barbecue books that come out every year, or not hundred, maybe eight or ten every year, and there, there, many of them are just repeats. They're carbon copies of each other. How to cook ribs? How to cook pulled pork? How to cook brisket? Um, and some of them have biographical. Here's how I learned how to cook when my daddy in the farm and yada. yada. And I didn't want to do that. I don't, I don't want, I'm, I'm not the story. The story is I want to teach. I want to teach people how to cook. I want to. So the last book was very, very sciencey. I did my master's in art and I think culinary art is a fine art. I think it's equal to, um, sculpture, painting, dance, Um, in the firmament of the fine arts. But art critics and others don't always see it that way. And I wanted to make that case. And I wanted to make it both verbally and visually in this book. And Rux, who was my editor uh, on the first book, didn't think that that was a viable way to go. And we went back and forth and I said, I really, you know, I'm I'm getting, getting up in years. This is probably going to be my last book. Um, uh, I really want to do this thing. And even if it doesn't sell as well as the last one, I want to get this out there. I want to get this off my chest. I want barbecue chefs, people who are out there on the, you know, you, you, you know, this as well as I do, but a lot of folks haven't learned it yet. Barbecue is changing. 
barbecue is becoming more artful. Um, uh, there is more creativity out there. You don't see it in competitions, but you go see Bill Durney cooking and uh, you go see some of these folks in Houston cooking with their Asian flavors. Um, uh, barbecue is on a new path of uh, Mexican flavors. And I want to write about that. And I also want to talk about the creativity that goes into it. And so they were they weren't up for that up for that. So I said, okay, well, I'm going to do it on my own. That can be done now. Self-publishing is now viable. It used to be it was called vanity publishing. You did it yourself. You never made any money at it. It was just for the fun of it and for the glory of saying I got a book. But you can now self-publish and get it into Amazon, get it into bookstores, and make money on it. And I chose to go that route. All right. So let's hold on to that thought just for a second. Let's back up before the breakup happens. What about going to the to the editor, Rux, whatever you, you're talking about, and saying, hey, I will think about yielding and completing this book the way you want. However, before we do that, we're going to put an addendum to the contract that's going to allow me for the third book to write the one that I want, and I want all the guarantees that that's going to happen now. Is that possible? I, want, I wanted it in book two. It was that simple, and I'd already begun writing it. I wanted it in book two, so I was going to do it on my own. And then Rux retired, and in the interim, the last book took off. And that made me a valuable asset to HarperCollins. And the new editor, Sarah, was more receptive to my ideas. All right, so before and we get into that, you come on the show and you say, hey, we're going to break the publishing industry. We're going to break the mold. I'm going to self-publish. Yeah. And I said, Meathead, you're going to do that. That book is never going to see the light of day because, as you kind of said, it just never seemed to gain critical acclaim or critical regard for a self-publisher to go out versus signing up with a publisher. Um, certainly, I understand where you're coming from or, or what your desire to do was. And you also, at, at some point... So there's a lot of things. You self-publish. Okay, we get that. But then there's still promotion that has to happen. You still got to uh, tour around, oh, you know, all this stuff that's going to cost you money. And Self-publishing is extremely difficult, and that's one of the reasons I backed away from the idea. First of all, you got to write it. Then you got to get the photography and the illustrations done. And edit. Uh, you got to design it. You got to have layout, design, typefaces. Um, all that stuff, then you have to f get it printed. You know, do you print in the United States? Do you print in Shanghai? What kind of paper? Is it hardbound or softbound? How many pages? Um, and the pages come in 16-page increments. So if you're over or under, then it's all very, very difficult, very complicated. And then the final part, all this now is actually pretty easy. If you out there, dear listener, are thinking about doing a book, it's pretty easy. There are services and places you can go to get all of this done and get help doing this and get the cover design and get the photography. The hard part is distribution. You need salespeople. You need people to get it into the bookstores, onto Amazon, and get it into distribution. And you, that means you need a warehouse. You need drop shipping. You need... And I finally looked at this and I said, I can write the book, which is going to take a lot of time, but all this ancillary stuff, layout, design, distribution, is just going to eat up so much time. I'm not going to be able to work on the website hardly at all. And I, I went back to Sally, my agent, and I said, let's open up conversation with my the new editor, Sarah. And Sarah liked the idea with some suggestions, and they were good. And they threw just an, an unbelievable amount of money at me. I couldn't turn it down. The self-publishing concept does uh, meander through a year or two. I think at one point you went to the Pitmasters Club for a, a, a crowd sourcing or crowdfunding campaign where buy mm -hmm. three years, get one free, you know, whatever it was. Um, I, I assume that, uh, of course, uh, that memory or that memory. So that money's also going to all of these other things that are included in this self-publishing, mm -hmm. I would assume. How long in the process of I'm going to change it to I got I to gotta fold at this point uh, takes, takes place? 
How much time? I don't know, there was about a year of working on the book and preparing and then um, um, doing research. I mean, I had to find um, uh, warehouses and all that stuff. And at, at some point, I just I woke up. I snapped out of it. I said, you know, it's it, the, the, the first part is easy. The second part is tougher. And there is this real factor. Um, it's, it's really funny. I mean, you can be a, a really good barbecue chef. You can win competitions, make the Hall of Fame and everything. Uh, you're not going to get into Bon Appetit or uh, other magazines. You're not going to get on television too easily um, un unless you have a book, unless you have credibility. Books somehow make you credible in the in the um, in in the media world in the media sphere um i don't know why that is um and self-published books are viewed as lesser than harper collins is whom i'm with now is one of the big five there's five major corporations in the publishing world and they're one of the biggest they're huge um and uh, i mean they just swallowed up um uh, the hardcore uh, and uh, other. so I'm with a big publisher. They can afford to write a, a massive check. They have a sales market, sales and marketing team. They have all the layout and design people. And Sarah's a good editor. Can we stop here? I'll do a quick break and then we'll come back yeah. and finish out here. You, stand by. You're running the show. We are talking with Meathead from AmazingRibs.com on that second book that is here we're going to get into the latest updates here in just one second so stand by for that i will talk to you quickly about my good friend nick bauer and the gang over at primo grill what do we love about ceramic cookers we love that they're fuel efficient we love that you can achieve low and slow temperatures for traditional barbecue meats we love that you can get rip-roaring hot for high-temperature grilling of steaks and other thin cuts, but what's missing in the everyday lineup of ceramic cookers? The real ability to do true two-zone cooking. Two-zone cooking is very important to both professional and backyard cooks alike. It's the best way to manage a fire and cook with confidence. However, getting a two-zone fire in a round ceramic cooker isn't very realistic. Why? Because it's round. Enter Primo Grills and the game-changing oval design. The shape gives you the ability to execute a true two-zone setup that you desire. It also gives you the other ceramic grill benefits as well. And when you think about it, there's more than 60, 60, 60 different ways to configure the Primo cooker, so you're only limited by your culinary imagination. Everybody who owns a cooker loves accessories, and Primo has stepped up the game as far as accessories are concerned as well, releasing many over the last year or so. The Primo Grill rotisserie accessory, the Primo Grill pizza accessory, they have a new flat top insert, bunch of new things getting ready to be released as well. They're releasing them before Nick even tells me about them. That's how quick it's happened. So here's the bottom line. Best ceramics in the biz. Yes. Patented technology. Yes. True two-zone cooking capabilities and multiple sizes of ovals. Yes and yes. But you got to go to a dealer and find them because that's where they're sold. Primogrill.com. Find a dealer near you. Visit the dealer. And then check out the Primo that fits your needs best. And then get all the accessories, too, while you're there. They're all there. Primogrill.com. Follow them on Facebook and Instagram. We're back with more Meathead right after this. Stick around. I'll be right back. You're listening to the Barbecue Central Show. Stern, Jim Rome, Dan Patrick, and Greg Rampey. The Mountain Rushmore of talk show entertainment. Now, let's get back to the Barbecue Central Show. Welcome back. And we are joined once again by our pal Meathead at AmazingRibs.com. So we've had a good recap well, I, of that. I gotta, gotta jump in, by the way. All right. I was, you know, a lot of stuff. I, I, <laughs> I was the first to coin the term two-zone cooking, and I was the first to point out that Primo is the best for two-zone cooking among the ceramic cookers, and they have taken that and run with it. Of course. Uh, but I'm the one that told them that you have an advantage over the other uh, ceramics, and uh, they have run with it, and I love the Primo. Um, uh, you know, it's like I was the one who told grill grates, turn them upside down and you can sear on the backside. Mm. 
Um, so it's just, uh, you know, uh, it, it's great. I've, I've enjoyed a lot of success. We've talked about the first book. We're talking about now how you're transitioning into that second book off of a thought of breaking the industry and self-publishing. But now we're going back and rekindling conversations with a traditional mm-hmm. publisher. I make the statement that you sent me a couple weeks ago saying that the second book that we've been waiting for is now going to be backed up until the spring of 2025. So what happened between that point and the announcement that I made a couple weeks ago delaying until the spring of 2025? In the past year, I've worked almost full time on this book. Um, and I, because I'm getting up in years and because it is both a painful pleasure, um, I decided that this really had to be the last book. And so I just, you know, I, t- I tell my writers when they write for me, just sit down at the keyboard and stream of consciousness, puke up everything that's in your mind. Just start the process by getting everything onto well, we yeah, I used to say, get it on a paper. Then you go back, and the, this is the key part, is the editing process. Then you go back and you cut out stuff that's irrelevant, that uh, is repetitious, and now you take that lump of clay and you form it into a sculpture. And the same thing goes tr- for writing. You need to just get it all down. And so I did that, and when I was done, and even after I started working the clay, I had enough for two books. It was almost 300,000 words, plus the photographs. Um, I don't know if you have time to share any of them, but I really worked hard at upping my photographic skills, and I adopted a technique called light painting, which is not well-known, extremely difficult, but produces gorgeous images. Um, And uh, I really wanted this to be a, a great book. Um, and, uh, when I was done, I said, geez, this is a two book set. Nobody's ever done a two book set on barbecue. I mean, look at the success of in other worlds. There are two book sets. I'm looking at the, um, uh, what's his name's uh, six book set. The, uh, the modernist cuisine set. I said, okay, that's cool. I understand a little bit about marketing differentiation. Making, pardon? That was six books. Uh, the the, uh, the the modernist cuisine is six book set. Oh, Chris Young, you mean? Uh, well, Chris was one of the yeah, editors. One of the, it's, yeah. uh, Nathan Mervold is oh. the, uh, the the Dude, the head I, of that process. Six books, wow. Yeah, I've got it right there. It's massive. It was over six hundred bucks, um, uh, and it sold because it was viewed as definitive. And one of the things I understand about marketing is that differentiation is crucial. You can't just be same old, same old. You have to be differentiated. You have to understand your reader, your buyer, whether it's barbecue or whether it's a book. It has to be different from the competition. It has to be unique or special. There has to be something special about it. And I thought, okay, a two-book set, definitive, with a focus on culinary art and creativity and using Asian ingredients and Spanish ingredients instead of the standard um, and showing where barbecue is going next, I this is this can sell, and I think by being a two book set, it will say immediately to the press and to anyone else that this is a definitive book. And so I thought I had this really great concept, and I went back to Sarah and I said, "Here it is." And uh, the, the, I went to her about three months before the deadline, and uh, she said, "I don't know." And they, they, everything has to go through marketing. And marketing and manufacturing all said, we have supply chain issues. Paper is really expensive, especially high-quality paper, to get beautiful reproduction on your beautiful photographs. And uh, printing and distribution, shipping, gasoline for trucks. and everything. You really need to get it down to one book. Well, that meant cutting it in half. And so the editing process began and um we just decided that it needs more time to get this down to 140,000 words and photographs and illustrations polish it and by that time it takes it takes a whole year after if if, if depending on your publisher if you're with a good manufacturer a good publisher like harper collins 
you turn in the manuscript and it takes a whole year for the editor to edit it, to send you the edits, for you to approve the edits, for um, the modifications. It goes to layout, design, and has to be checked again to make sure the captions are on the right pictures and the pictures are the right size and they're in the right place. And then cover design. And then there's what they call the blad, which is a sales brochure. And then it has to be brought to the book shows where there are, you know, there are annual expos for books and then they have to be uh, pitched to the uh, bookstores and they have to be ready for it all that stuff takes a year before the book can actually come out and we crossed the deadline uh, we were past that deadline so uh, we had no choice the ugly thing is and i'm gonna you're gonna fall out of the chair when you take a two book set you trim it down to one what have you got well this is what I was going to say. You got a As you're book. going through trying to sell the editor on this two book set, it's not going your way. Say, hey, uh, lady, twirl around and get me a deal for a third book because you don't need to rewrite or you don't need to write a, a third book from scratch. You're having a third book happen upon you by editing out the second book. So easy creativity wise, you might have to do a little polishing here or there. Maybe you add some stuff and now you have the third book. So maybe you're not getting a two book set that you were hoping for, but in essence you are because maybe you get a deal for that third book. Is that in process? Yes, but, but <laughs> remember, remember I told you to shoot me. If you ever heard me say, I don't count this as a, I wouldn't count this as a traditional third book. This is something that is just well, being born out of something in the editing. It may not happen, and it may and it may not happen for this reason. I, right now, I'm focused on making a second book and making it really good, making it coherent, and making it organized, and getting out of it that which d does not necessarily belong. Now, I go look at the cutting room floor, and I say, "Does this ha make a book? A book isn't just every idea that you have puked up on a paper. It has to have a beginning, a middle, and an end. It has to flow. It has to have a concept. So I don't know if what is being cut. I'm still in the process of editing and cutting, and I'll probably finish that up in a month or two, and then we'll go through the rest of it. I need to do some fine tuning on the recipes and some more photography, but it'll be no trouble making the deadline. Then I'll look at everything that's on the cutting room floor and say, do we have enough for another book? Between tonight, <coughs> between tonight, July 11th and the spring of 2025, which is in essence, almost two years away. Yeah. We have a saying in the business. That holds pretty true regularly in my business, not the business. Time kills deals. As you sit here right mm -hmm. now, being 100% honest and realistic, is there any chance that this second book doesn't come to life? No. No, no, no. no. They, 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 the contract is solid. The book is done. The publisher loves it. She, she, think, she thinks I'm a good writer. Uh, that's, a, that, that, that's, that's nice to hear. She, she says, you know, there's sections that make me laugh out loud. Um, uh, even your dad jokes. Um, she says, I've learned a lot about cooking. And she deals, I mean, she, she, she edits Jacques Pepin. I mean, she, she's, uh, you know, Sarah Grunberg, uh, she's got a stable of really great writers. Um, she says, you, you know, that I've taught her a lot about cooking, not just outdoor. So I, it will definitely fly. I mean, there's no disagreement with her. And we both agree that there's more than enough here. It's just a matter of taking the big lump of clay and getting it down to a small lump of clay. And uh, that, that I can do that. I mean, I'm a pro. You had mentioned it at some point during our look back to where we are today. Walk cooking over a charcoal chimney. Are you saying that if you're cooking with a walk indoors, you're missing a key component to successful walk cooking? Well, anybody who's tried to cook Asian food or, you know, stir fry. One of the secrets to stir fry is it, it's done. If you've ever walked into a Chinese kitchen or looked into a Chinese kitchen, they cook on these carbon steel woks, big bowl-shaped um, frying pans, if you will, and they cook over a massive flame, and it gets really hot. If you try to do that on a gas stove or even, an, or worse, an electric stove, 
um, the meat, as soon as you throw the meat in there, especially if it's been marinated, um, it breaks water. Um, mushrooms, they break water. And frying is done at a high temperature with oil. Water doesn't go above 212, no matter what you do. Once the water comes out of the meat and is pooling in the bottom of that wok, the meat can't go above 212. So you can't really brown it. It's going to be gray. So the secret to great stir fry is to lock in that moisture with hot oil. And it, to do that, you need really high heat. And um, uh, the uh, uh, most indoors cooktops just can't get there, even these new induction uh, burners. So it dawned on me one day when I was uh, out around dusk and I was lighting up my charcoal chimney to grill something, I was noticing that blue flame coming out of the charcoal chimney at the top. And, I, you know, it looked like the back end of an F-16. And I got out some thermometers, and, and it was well over 1,000 degrees. Mm. And I'm noticing the charcoal chimney is a round burner, a lot like what they use in a Chinese restaurant. I ran in and got my wok and uh, put it in there and took the uh, infrared gun. Man, that sucker was hot. So I've started stir-frying on that thing now. And even tofu. And, I, and by the way, I hope, I think there'll be a tofu recipe in this book. Just one. <laughs> but I really want new stuff in there. I want, I want your listeners, my readers, to break outside of the good old-fashioned ribs and brisket and pulled pork menu. I want them to experiment with tofu. I want them to experiment with Asian ingredients and Spanish and Italian and, 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 and techniques. Uh, um, and that's a lot of what's in these books. And uh, hopefully uh, we can begin pushing barbecue in a new direction. Is wok cooking on a chimney safe? Is it stable enough? Because aren't you kind of like oh, yeah. working it, flipping well, it and all yeah. that? You, you've got to be careful. You don't want to. What I do is I put it in my Weber kettle. I just put the chimney in my kettle on the charcoal grate, not on the top grate. So it's sitting down low. And you just are careful not to knock the chimney over. But if you do, it just goes over into the um, into the kettle. Hmm. Um, so, uh, you know, I mean, it requires a little technique because you're, you're, you're constantly flipping the food with a wok. And you've got a, a wok paddle and such, but uh, uh, and it's fun, and it's fun, and it's good. I mean, you can do. I mean, if you love General Tso's chicken, uh, you can make it. One question left. We got a couple minutes left. How are those rubs selling? Uh, they're doing okay. We never set out to make them gangbusters. What happened was, is the folks over at Old World Spices said to us, I went out there to visit them to learn more about how spices work and what extracts their flavor. You know, do I put oil on my ribs before the spices or do I put mustard or do I put mayo? What's going to extract flavors? And while I was there, their marketing people came to me and said, you know, you've got brand recognition. Why you know, much more so than all these competition cooks who make rubs and stuff? Why don't you come out with some rubs? So we did, and it's just a sideline for us. I'm very pleased with them. I'm very happy. Um, I, I mentioned to an e to you in an email. I was just up at the barbecue supply house in Milwaukee yesterday, doing a little presentation and book signing, and they were serving samples of my rubs and sauces. And he credits you with getting him into the business. He loved it, listening to you. And uh, he said that uh, you were an inspiration to him. Um, uh, but what we're doing now and, uh, uh, is we're serving the rubs and the sauce with my presentations. <laughs> and they sold a ton of them. Um, so they are selling. We're making some money on our list of revenue streams. There aren't many. Um, it's not in the top three. If you're dejected because you were ready for Meathead's second book next year... <laughs> Stop it. Bide your time. It's only a little more time, even though tomorrow's never promised to any of us. However, let's keep a positive thought. And in the spring of 2025, this book will be ready to be delivered to your hot little hands. No pun intended. And uh, Meathead, I appreciate the extended time this evening, the look back. I think it's important for those that are just joining us for the first time, just finding out about you 
um, not only the success that the first book was, but all the things that are involved, the minutiae. You know me, I love digging into the minutiae where other people probably don't. But I think that's where the real conversation happens and the real ability for a listener or a reader to get to know somebody on a deeper level, a more connected level. And always appreciate the fact that you're ready to share that candor. Well, that book publishing world is 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 very different than the barbecue world, and I've learned a bit about it. And uh, you know, if your readers have some questions, I I can't do consulting, but if they have some questions and they want to talk about it, they can reach me at uh, uh, meathead at amazingribs dot com. And uh, uh, you know, because I know everybody out there wants to write a book. So thanks a lot, Greg. I appreciate you being patient with me. I know you've been giving me grief over the years over the delays. I'm going to be. I, I think it's going to be a good book. I'm hopeful. Meathead, we wish you success, and we'll talk to you again next week. It's Meathead right there. So now we have all of the background from the first book, all the background on the second book, why the delay is happening here on that second book, and as you were paying attention, I think there is the real possibility of a third book coming out as long as what's on the cutting room floor, as Meathead says, makes the sense of putting a third book together not just throwing a bunch of stuff in and calling it a third book certainly he would want to have it meet his standard for publishing so we thank meathead for doing it again the website amazingribs.com of course you know that and if you haven't received the first book or bought a copy of that first book highly recommended of course the best selling and then stay tuned for that second book in the spring of 2025 of more updates and insight for meathead as we push on through these next almost two years as to what's happening in that process. That's going to put a wrap on the first hour. But before we get to that second hour, let me talk to you about Big Papa Smokers, the one-stop online shop for all things barbecue, a curated selection of only the best outdoor cooking and grilling supplies that you can get on the path to better barbecue results in no time. They have 13 perfectly balanced flavors of rubs and seasonings. The popular flavors like Sweet Money, Cattle Prod, Cash Cow, Little Louis Season Salt, Double Secret Steak Rub, some of my favorites, of course. They also own Granny's Barbecue Sauce. If you're looking for a new go-to sauce that will please everybody's palate, might I suggest Granny's. And aside from the rubs and seasonings, you know they're selling cookers. If you're looking for a versatile smoker that's easy to use, check out that Mac two-star general pellet cooker. Big Pop is the exclusive Mac dealer, even offering special packages. If you're not a fan of pellet smokers or you don't know which kind of grill you should get, call them and ask questions. 877-828-0727. That's 877-828-0727. Or you can shop their website at BigPopSmokers.com. That's B-I-G-P-O-P-P-A Smokers. Big Papa Smokers, longtime sponsor of the show, and happy to have them. And now we will point to that second hour. Stick around. We'll be right back. Hi, this is Jeff Stone of Grandpa's Pride Barbecue from the Panhandle of Florida, and you are listening to the Barbecue Central Show. 